Um, how many of you have had LASIK surgery, LASIK eye surgery before? Just me and cat music, that's it? Oh, up there, Sarah Orta. Okay, you guys know what I'm talking about. It's awesome, isn't it? So if you wear contacts or glasses, you're used to kind of waking up and, um, uh, okay, imagine before there were like phones by your bed that told you the time. Imagine alarm clock across the room, you know, and you'd be like, what time is it? You squint or the clock on the wall. Um, I remember when I had LASIK uh, when I was uh, probably 24, 25 years old, um, so 14 years ago now. And I remember that next day waking up and being amazed that everything around me was clear. I didn't have to reach for my glasses. I didn't have to put my contacts in. Everything was clear. I saw clearly for the first time. Um, I'm a big apologist for LASIK. Just save some money, ask people instead of giving you gifts for Christmas or your birthday or whatever, just say, would you contribute to my LASIK fund? It was well worth it. Um, and I even had a horrible experience. There you go. I had a piece of lint stuck in my eyeball. I had to go back the next day. They undid the flap and they took it out. And I'd still say, it's worth it. Katie saw me thrashing around in pain for like 24 hours. And I'd still say it's worth it because seeing clearly is awesome. Not having to read your glasses is wonderful. Um, in the, our Psalm here in Psalm 73, yes, this is going somewhere. Uh, in Psalm 73, we see uh, that the psalmist has blurry vision at first. He's not seeing things according to how they are. And then we see a change midway through the psalm that he sees very clearly. In particular, he's looking at the lives of other people and, he's grow, and, and envy is growing in his heart. He's seeing how other people just kind of waltz through life with ease and pleasure without any care in the world. I wonder about you this morning. I wonder um, if you're looking at other people and you're envying them. Maybe you want the influence that someone else has. Maybe you are disappointed with an aspect of your life and you just wish that you had what so-and-so has. Maybe you see others that have plenty of money. You know, they eat out whenever they want. It's not a cut to their budget because they just have a bunch of money. Or maybe you see someone and they have the type of children that you want or the type of parents that you want or grandparents. Maybe you look upon those who give in to their feelings of lust and power and greed and it seems that there's no consequence to their lives and to their decisions. Well, the psalmist feels this tension. He knows that God is good to his people, but seeing the prosperity of the evil around him and the seeming inaction of God, he becomes envious. He desires and longs for what others have. And we get a window into his heart this morning. The Bible is so real. It speaks to real experiences. The psalmist takes us through the tension of his heart. And we see that after this labyrinth of his soul, 
He comes to see clearly what was true all along, that God truly is good to his people. So our psalm is Psalm 73. It's found on page 485 of your pew Bible. And because I want to read every verse of this psalm, and it's a bit longer, I don't want you to forget what we would have read at the very beginning. I'm going to do something a little bit atypical for me, and we're going to read, we're going to kind of walk through it together. And I broke it down in two parts. The first part is this, distorted vision, verses 1 to 16. Distorted vision, 1 to 16. The second part would be 17 and following, clear vision. Let's look at this distorted vision. The psalm opens up. We see we do have a superscript here. It's a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a Levite assigned by King David to lead worship in the tabernacle before the temple uh, built by Solomon was, was finished. Now we can find this in Second Chronicles chapter 29. Um, we don't know the particular situation here. And I think that helps us understand even more that this is a psalm meant for all people, regardless of the situation they find them in, because evil is always around us. And the temptation to be envious of evil is always there. We do know that Asaph was a contemporary of King David. He did see David suffer. Sometimes justly, sometimes unjustly. And he would have had a front row seat to see the King David suffer under the evil from his own nation, his own people, Israel, but also from the surrounding nations. What's important to note, though, that this is a song. This is a song meant to bring up emotions that are lying maybe dormant in your heart or maybe they're unspoken and they give voice to what people are feeling. It's, it's a bit of a shocking and even uh, refreshing that this would be a worship song that Israel would sing. Uh, it's, it reminds me of the song we just sang, I Asked the Lord. You know, Lord, please give me grace, fulfill my needs. Uh, Lord, you seem intent to aggravate my, my soul. You press me down so the hidden evils of my heart might be revealed. But you see verse 1 here. He starts out with what he knows, and then we quickly see the tension. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He starts out saying, I know God is good to his holy nation, to Israel, those he set apart. From other nations, the people that are distinct from the world. However, I about fell down because I'm looking at the arrogance and the, the flourishing of the wicked, and now I'm envious. Envy about broke me. And then in verses 4 to 12, he details just what he was envying. We see that he's envying the prosperity of the wicked. Look at verse 4 for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. It's a positive thing. They don't consider death. They, they don't walk the difficult road of suffering that God's people do. A fat here is a good thing, meaning they have plenty. Everything they need has given, been given to them. They're strong. They're not weak. They're not starving. Verse 5. For they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They have a merry life with little trouble. 
Then verse 6 says that because they have so little resistance in this life and because they just do as they please, they wear pride like a necklace and violence as their garments. They clothe themselves with violence. They're pompous people. And they're prospering. And the psalmist is having trouble understanding that God is good to his people while these people seemingly go just unpunished with their pride and with their violence. See, if you're not accountable and your actions have no immediate or even long-term consequences, you can mistreat others and you can get away with it and you can even justify it. But these people here in the psalm, they're not just proud, not just violent. Verse 7, look at verse 7. It says that they are sensual as well. They have lustful thoughts. And instead of battling their lustful thoughts, they engage in them. Their eyes swell out through fatness. They see someone they like and they go get it. Their hearts overflow with follies. They're not like... The wise man in Proverbs 7 who, even though he's enticed to walk down the the alley of the adulterous woman to her house, he resists it. Because in wisdom, he knows that he should not give in to his feelings. He knows that her house is the way to shale, to death. Going down to the chambers of death, as Proverbs 7 says. But here, the wicked, not heeding the advice of Proverbs 7... Without any apparent repercussions, turn aside to her ways, to the ways of lust, making their heart overflow with follies. It's as if Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein, they just get what they want and they keep doing it. And there's, there's no process of justice. That's what he feels like. Can you imagine what it's like? It was like for people, men or women who knew the evils of Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein, who spoke up about it as there were people that seemingly did speak up about it. And yet nothing was done. Or, or maybe the injustice that some of those women now older looking back saying, how come no one cared? It can be maddening to see people with such apparent evil just getting away with it. And the psalmist says they are happy, they are proud, they are violent, they are lustful, and they speak against God's people, and they even speak against God himself. Look at verse 8. They scoff and speak with malice loftily. They, they threaten oppression. One commentator, W.S. Plumer, says here that they, by their speech, suggest favor and argue for oppression, extortion, cruelty. And they aren't merely in their own vacuum of evil, but they actually oppress others that they might be lifted up themselves. Others, probably the pure in heart in Israel here, are stepping stones to their their own lifting up. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They speak profanely against God and his word. They think they are superior to God himself. Again, Plumer says that they say what they will and of whom they will. 
They do as they please. Meanwhile, the psalmist is feeling this tension. I know God is good. I'm trying to walk the pure path. And yet they keep flourishing, getting away with it. Matthew Henry, Puritan, says this. They take liberty to abuse all that come in their way. No man's greatness or goodness can secure him from the scourge of the virulent tongue. They take pride and pleasure in bantering all mankind. And as this isn't enough, if he, as if he's not looking on their evil and saying, okay, that's enough. Look at verse 10. Their ways are even effective at persuading God's people to join them. Charles Spurgeon says that some of God's people resort to the company of the wicked because they find temporal advantage in it. You see, their ways are effective at misleading and deceiving even God's people. Because of their pompous tongue, these evildoers, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. You can see kind of as we saw in Psalm 42 last week. And if you didn't know what we're doing is we're going through the first psalm of each book of psalms. So Psalm 1 uh, one and two, Psalm 42, Psalm 73. Next week is Psalm 90. And then I think Psalm 107 is the first in, in book five. But you, you see this theme of, of people attacking God's people. And even people being led astray by those attacks, as verse 10 says. You see, the wicked do not think they will give account to God. He says, how can God know, they say? Is there any knowledge with the Most High? Does he know anything? Friends, God's delayed judgment and and patience gives a false notion that God doesn't see clearly what's going on. In the end, the psalmist sums it up by saying this, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. Everywhere he looks. He sees people faithless to God, hateful, sensual, speaking violence, and yet they go about prospering on in their sin. The psalmist says, God, I know you're good in verse 1, but I envy their ability to carry on in this life without any consequence of judgment for their actions. This idea has just swallowed up the psalmist in verse 13. He says this. So he he says, I know God's good. Yet I about broke me that 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 the evil continue to prosper. And now I'm envious of them. And then he gets really honest here in verse 13. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying that God, this is pointless to walk in the upright path. Man, this is in the Bible, y'all. His envy has consumed him and swallowed him up. He's not nearly saying that the faithful life is hard. He's gotten to the point. He's saying the faithful life is not worth it. Friends, have you ever felt that way? And have you ever spoken to God like that? The right path is too hard. And Lord, I've kept your ways in vain. 
verse 14, for all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. One commentator on verse 14 says, while they, though wicked, still increase in wealth and seem secure forever. I, who have faithfully endeavored to avoid sin and do the will of God, am subjected every day and all day to privation and distress. He did do one positive thing here. Look at the next verse. Despite how he has felt, he actually held his tongue. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's saying, I'm going to gripe inwardly. I'm going to thrash on my bed. I'm going to cry out to you because I don't want to harm your people, God, with my faithlessness and my envy. You see, the psalmist is stuck between reality and his feelings. He's troubled by the fact that he cannot understand how the wicked prosper and how God does, how God is still good, yet apparently does nothing about his situation. Envious, envy is a deadly sin, Christian. Envy is a deadly sin. At the heart of envy is this disappointment with God. So just ask yourself right now, where are you disappointed with God? What plan of yours have you not seen work out? And how do you look toward God in disappointment? What has God withheld from you? And are you disappointed in God for that? What trials come along your way? And are you disappointed that God sent that or allowed that? Envy at its very core is disappointment with God and what he's either withheld or what he's either given you. For the Christian, when we're envious, we're fundamentally saying to God, how could you? Why have you? God, I thought you had better plans for me. Look at them over there. You seem to care about them more than you care about me. And I'm over here doing all the right things, walking uprightly, and yet you're withholding good from me. And then the doubt really creeps in. Are you really good, God? Aren't you glad the Bible's so raw and honest? Surely, Christian, that's touched you before. Where you've looked around, saw the apparent prosperity of others and said, God, how could you? God, why not me? Do you, do you actually love me? Are you actually good to me? Friends, that's a blurry vision. When we feel that way, we're not seeing rightly. We're seeing pre-operation with LASIK. But then you see this movement It's our second point. We see clear vision, verses 17 to 28. Verses 17 to 28. And and I do have four sub-points here, but they go along with the text. Look at verses 17 and 28. First, we see his clear vision becomes he sees God's judgment. He sees God's judgment. Look at verse 17. Remember, he's feeling all this way, but boom, pivot. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. 
Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. What a drastic change. A drastic change. He had this disposition toward evil that in a moment pivoted to seeing reality. In one moment, he, he has resent, this resentful longing toward evil. And in the next, he can say how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Well, what changed? What changed? How did you get this new perspective when you're stuck in envying others? And when you're looking at God and saying, God, how could you? God, are you really good to me? Don't you want to know this? Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. The holy place of God. Okay, well, what does that mean? One commentator says it like this, until I entered the grounds of God's dealing with men, as explained by the sacred writings, which are laid up in the place dedicated to his worship. Meaning for Asaph, it meant the tabernacle. He went inside where God's holy scriptures were laid open, read, and where God's people sang worship songs to God. Much like Psalm 73 Then his vision became more clear. Martin Luther, commenting on this text, says this. Until I hear or read the word and find what God saith concerning the ungodly. And until I look into the histories and behold the judgments of God, which have been since the foundation of the world. God's word was kept in the sanctuary, in the holy place. God's people would gather there for worship and singing. In the sanctuary, the eternal perspective shatters his temporal perspective. He's saying until he worshiped God according to God's revealed word. Then I saw clearly. Friends, if you're stuck in envy, there's hope. There's hope right here. You're all around it. That's why Jesus says time and time again. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hear God's word. Let it penetrate your stubborn heart. When you are valuing temporal perspectives over an eternal perspective. You see, it is God's word that is able to give discernment to the end. And seeing clearly, now he sees that their path is a a slippery one. And that in their obstinance toward God, they will fall to ruin. He understands clearly what he already knows. That all people are at enmity with God. It might look like. People are living their best lives now, but in reality, time is ticking and their day of account will come. But you can't see clearly. You can't see like this, but through the lens of scripture. You cannot have an eternal perspective of God's dealing with the righteous and the wicked unless you have this eternal perspective. And you can't have this eternal perspective by looking at the sunset or by looking at the mountains or the ocean. By laughing with friends, all good gifts from God, all that show his favor, but through the lens of Scripture. Charles Spurgeon gives an illustration. He says that 
uh, the motion of the planets appear kind of disorderly from our perspective on earth. So if we could we just see how the, the planets are spinning and how they're moving right now in our solar system, it would be a bit disorienting and confusing. We don't know exactly what's going on, but if we're able to stand on that hot sun, we can see they're all just orbiting around the sun, kind of at their own speed. All things are in order. All is well. God is providentially over the planets. My friend, he's providentially over your life. You see, your perspective can shift if you are in the right spot. So friends, let's, as Psalm 1 says, meditate on the scriptures. Let God's word by the power of the spirit take you up and over this life so you can discern what is reality. Well, after he understands God's judgment in verses 17 to 20, we see that he repents. Look at verse 20, verses 21 and 22. He discerns their end, and now he himself repents. Verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Here he shows what he was like as he harbored bitterness toward God. My soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. Bitterness toward God often starts in disappointment with God and his plans for us. And it can only be seen for the folly that it is after genuine repentance. He's saying that his heart was sick. That's what it means there when he says, I was pricked in heart. I had, I had, a, had like a disease in my heart. And, and he says that he, he kind of raised up his fist at God and demanded, why are you letting everyone else be happy but me? Why are you so slow to judgment? Don't you think you should act more swiftly? Remember, he said, what's the point of carrying on like this? Friends, do you see the, the ridiculousness of what's going on here? This created being saying to his omniscient, omnipotent creator, his suffering during his envy was really the result of his own doing. He says here, my heart ex 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 exacerb exacerbates itself. I pierce myself. I did this to myself. It's hard to see in the English, but that's what it means. So much of our own suffering is a result of our own unbelief in God's goodness. We are brutes at times and unknowingly so. And the way around this, the way over that hump, that discontentment in God's plans for us is found in repentance. This gracious gift that's also a command of God. Repentance can sometimes be, almost all the times, as a bit of a painful experience. But it's always followed by times of refreshing and gladness and delight in God and his gifts. 
Peter, preaching in Acts 3, has this idea. He says uh, to those who, who, cru- who he blamed for crucifying Jesus, he said, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So re- repent of your sins, turn from them, and turn toward Jesus. That you may have times refresh- of refreshing. Well, how are you refreshed? From the very presence of the Lord. Repentance paves the way that Jesus might come and enter your heart. A Christian, that's exactly how you became saved. It's that God, in his kindness, he granted you repentance. And you saw the folly, the wickedness of your sin. And you turn towards Christ in faith. If you're not a Christian and you're among us, thank you for coming this morning. I know there's a lot of things you could be doing. I think this is a great place for you to be. You get to hear how you can stop envying others the rest of your life and turn toward your creator and say, thank you, God, for your gifts. But ultimately, you can say, God, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for me as a ransom, who lived the life that I could not live, who died on the cross and rose from the dead three days later. You see, Jesus is... The object, after we turn from our sins, we walk toward him. And he doesn't merely save us just in some legal way. Now our sins are no longer counted against us. But now he walks with us. We have his very presence with us. Always to the end of the age. And all and, and, and forever into glory. If you're not yet a Christian, please come find me after the service. I would love to spend my afternoon talking to you. Or just five minutes. Don't want to scare you away. About Jesus. Uh, what's interesting for us, Warnell Road, is that in this text, just how raw his repentance is. And remember, this is a worship song. And this is Asaph. You can imagine Asaph probably had a lot of pressure to look really good in, in, in the sight of Israel. You know, he was a contemporary of King David. He's, he was kind of put on a pedestal. And, and Asaph probably felt a lot of pressure, but he clearly knows what it's like to be envious. You don't write something like this if you haven't experienced this before. And we also see it's a psalm, a song of Asaph. Friends, we need to ask ourselves, how much of our confession of sin just kind of skims the surface Is your confession this raw? And if not, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of being judged? Afraid of looked up, being looked upon differently? I think sometimes so much of our confessing of sin seems kind of light and just kind of skims the surface because we confess in light of who others are, or at least in light of who we think others are. So we kind of grade ourselves on the sliding scale of, of, of looking at others and saying, oh, I, I don't, my language doesn't need to be quite like this. My soul was embittered when I was pricked in the heart. I was a brute and I was ignorant. I was a beast. <laughs> Sometimes we don't confess like that. It's because we're looking at other people. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm brutish. I'm ignorant, but I'm not that ignorant. You know, I'm not that beastly like that brother or that sister. 
And so we never get to the heart or the, the, the root of a lot of our sin. This morning, I, uh, uh, we kind of had, we had, we had a sick kid. And if you ever have if, uh, a sick kid, parents, um, it can be kind of intense in the moment, right? So Katie and I are, are dealing with, with one of our kids. And um, in those moments, it can get a little intense because we're trying to maneuver things, grab things, um, move kid from this point to that point so that things don't get ruined, et cetera. And, uh, and I, I didn't like the way I, it, I was convicted pretty quickly how I, I spoke to Katie in that moment. And so, uh, I went back to my office to prepare the sermon, you know, that's what you do when you're a pastor. Sometimes you sin and you start preparing a sermon and I went back and I was like, oh, okay, let me go back. And she understands we've been in enough t- intense situations in airports with sick kids and stuff like that, that, that we know like when, when, when the heat is on, there's an, a level of grace that we just give each other, right? We don't hold every word account. But this time I just, I felt convicted. And so I went back to her and I, I sat down and I was going to give her kind of a haphazard, like, hey, you know, that was intense. Like, sorry about that. You understand, right? And I was, again, doubly convicted by the Holy Spirit. I was like, oh my goodness, Mark, no. That was brutish, ignorant, and beastly towards your wife. And you know what I felt after saying that? Because I trust Katie, I felt so refreshed. Because Jesus gets the glory there. I look weak as I really am. And my wife already knows this about me. It was a moment of honesty and then a moment of refreshing. Because I turned, I'm ultimately sinned against God, but also against Katie. But it hurts, guys. There's something about doing that that always just kind of, it kind of tells you, don't do that. Because that's going to be painful. And it is painful. Because every time we repent, every time we confess our sin, we literally are dying to ourselves in a way. A little bit of Mark, of old Mark, is being, in a sense, crucified. My flesh, the part that I hold on to, the part that lingers, old Mark. Is dying. And it's always a bit scary or frightening to do that. Because I like myself. I want to uphold myself. I want others to think well of me. My friends, what we need to understand about repentance, that raw, honest repentance, when you are able to see yourself as a brute before God, as ignorant, because you're not omniscient, as really embittered toward God, as saying, God, you have disappointed me. When able to say that to God in this kind of honesty, like the psalmist here, that's when times of refreshing can come in. Your sin really is that bad that Jesus needed to be crucified for it. And we need to be a community of people that look around and understand that about one another. Otherwise, our repentance just kind of skims the surface. And we're not this robust community of people that are sinners saved by the amazing grace of God. So understand that when you feel that kind of fear of, of, of confessing sin or, or repenting to your spouse or to your brother or sister in Christ, that's an understandable feeling. 
push through that in faith and know that on the other side is this newness of life that Christ brings. Friends, it's good. Don't box up your repentance like this. Just come like this. I was a brute. I'm beast. I am sorry. I apologize. That was sin. When's the last time you repented like that? When's the last time you confessed your sin like that? Let's follow the model of this. Let's, let's, let's say to, to old Mark, to, to old Drew, to old Ryan, old Chris, to old Stephanie, like, be gone. <laughs> I want newness of life. I don't want to live like this with so many defenses and, and carefully with my life and, and care so much about how I come across. This is a psalmist saying this, leading God's people in worship. Certainly we can follow this model and do the same. Thirdly, under clear vision, now he has new affections. Look at verse 23. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Here's a refreshing part. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Oh, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, now he sees clearly, doesn't he? He sees eternal perspective. He's turned from his sins. And now he sees how ridiculous it was to envy those who are evildoers. He says, God is my shepherd. He holds me. He guides me with his counsel. And then because he's guiding me, he'll guide me all the way to glory. Heaven awaits me. I don't need anything else there. And that's not only my eternal condition, but it's my condition right now. He says, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you, O God. Your presence, your glory, oh God, is better than a thousand earthly joys. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere is what he's saying. God's presence is our good, Christian. It is so much better than whatever you're desiring that you don't have. Because if you are in Christ, you are sealed by his spirit and you have Christ. You see, I think the seed of envy begins when we're not delighting in God. The seed of envy begins when we're not delighting God. And we're not delighting in God, we can more easily be disappointed with God. We can be envious, and that envy can grow into bitterness. So we need to replace what could be envious in us, not by saying, not with a list of do's and don'ts, but with delighting in God, knowing that He is with us forever. Thomas Chalmers, Scottish professor and theologian in the 18th century, says, The love of the world cannot be expunged, expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. So what he's saying, let's, just, let's take it to our Psalm 73. He's saying, you can't just look at, 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 at evildoers. So, so verses 2 to um, 13, you can't just say that's worthless, that's bad. You need more than that. The love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness, but may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. He says you need a superior affection. You need something that you can delight in that's bigger than what the evildoers, than the wicked, than the ways of the world, than what they're delighting in. All right. Chalmers says in this way. 
talking about moralism. Moralism was just reigning in the church in his day. You know, people were, had all kinds of rules, rules upon rules on how to look good, how to obey God. And he's saying that is falling short. He says, my purpose is to show that from the constitution of our nature, from the way we are, the former method, moralism, is altogether incompetent and ineffectual. And that the latter method will alone suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart from the wrong affection that domineers over it. So if you have wrong affections of envy, the solution is not to say, I shouldn't envy that, I shouldn't envy that, I shouldn't envy that. The solution that will work and that is in the scripture is to find superior affection, to be satisfied with Christ. There's a solution. Not a bunch of lists of do's and don'ts that aren't in scripture. Not even to divorce the commands in scripture from what at the heart of it is. At the heart is to worship Christ. C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Friends, we are made for another world. And so what the world props up as delightful and satisfying, it really isn't. Because as we know, we know celebrities, we know famous athletes that in a sense have it all. And yet tragically will end their lives or the things that they are delighting in will so consume them that they will go to a really hard, bad state. But we're still fooled by it, aren't we? Asaph, the psalmist, is trying to get us to understand this. Don't envy the wicked. Delight in God and his presence. Come to him through his word, with his people. Sing to him. And then lastly, in verses 27, 28, he doesn't keep this to himself. He testifies about the goodness of God. Notice that. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That so that I may tell of all your works. He knows that the center of all sin is unfaithfulness to God. One translation says uh, on verse 27 says, Thou hast destroyed them that go on whoring after evil. John Calvin says, it is the worst kind of adultery to divide our heart that it may not continue fixed exclusively upon God. Affections meant for God yet placed on wealth or false gods, other people. That is faithlessness. Psalmist has come a long way, hasn't he? You see what his soul did? I know you're good, God. This is how I feel. And keeping my heart pure is almost in vain. Until I went in the sanctuary of God. And then I saw the end of the evil of those who practice evil. I was a brute before you. I was misguided. I was short-sighted. I was evil. I was sinful, O Lord. Forgive me. God's presence comes washing over him. You are my true delight. You are my portion in this life and now and then forevermore. And now, verse 28, I don't want to keep silent about that. I want to tell of this good news. 
that I may tell of all your works. Now with clear vision, he sees the reality of evil, repents, has new affections, and now he wants to tell about his works. You see, the only rescue for divine justice is by being cleansed by the blood of Christ. He becomes our refuge because he paid it all on the cross as we sang about earlier. Friends, the book of Psalms is trying to get us to understand that there's one refuge for mankind. And that's God's anointed son, King Jesus. You see that word refuge there? If you remember back to Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the son lest he become angry with you. You see that refrain over and over again. So friends, let's testify to the gospel in our lives. I praise God for the many fusion students we have that are planning to take a whole summer and to testify to people who in large part likely have never heard of this good news. That have no advocate between them and God. And so they go and they testify about God's goodness. What about your neighbors? Have you told of the works of God in your life? How can you more faithfully do what the psalmist wants to do here and testify to God's goodness? How can you more faithfully carry out the great commission that Jesus gave his disciples? To go to all the nations, teaching them all that, that, ha- that God has commanded them. In conclusion, friend, if you have blurry vision still, Pray to God. God, reorient me according to your word. And he will help you see reality. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for the completed work of Jesus Christ. It is glorious now on earth. It is glorious now in heaven. And it will be glorious forever and ever and ever. Our song now is that Christ has come. And we behold his beauty, his goodness, his truth. We sing about it. We tell others about it. Oh, Lord, make this the the song of our hearts. Lord, where we are withholding from you in repentance. Oh, God, show us that repentance might feel scary because we're dying to ourselves, but we have times of refreshing afterward. May we be a church that quickly confesses sin to one another. May we be a church, oh God, that remains steadfast, that Jesus is our refuge, and that where we don't need to envy evildoers. Oh God, help us now as we sing to you in Christ's name. Amen.